This is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. Before we begin today's show, a moment to thank our sponsor, Hired.com. Sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out right at the very end that either the salary offer isn't good or the company culture doesn't match. It kind of sucks. But not if you go with Hired.com. They have a much more structured and organized process. Now, throughout the whole process, your dedicated talent advocate will completely have your back. They'll give you unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. It's awesome. Now, Hired offers access to almost 4,000 innovative employers, including like big brand names, all the big ones you can think of, Facebook, and even the small engineering startups. So the size and the type of company you want to connect with is completely up to you. Okay, so where all can you use Hired? Well, currently, they're in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So any one of these places, just reach out to them. Even if you're open to relocation, let them know and they can probably hook you up. So, okay, let's get down to it. How much does using Hire.com cost? I mean, a dedicated talent advocate, it's got to cost a lot. Wait for it. Actually, they pay you. Usually, Hire.com's customers get a $1,000 hiring bonus. But as a listener of Fragmented, by signing up with the show's special link, that's Hire.com slash Fragmented, you get double the bonus. So that's $2,000. So if you're looking for a job, use Hire.com and do use our special link. They'll know you came from us and that'll help support the show. Thank you so much for sponsoring today's show, Hired. All right. So Don, before we begin today's show, I have a quick piece of follow-up that I want to do from episode 52, which I uh, released. It was a fragment where I talked about the parameterized testing technique. Which is awesome. Oh, thank you. So there are two pieces of follow-up from that. One is I mentioned Jose Alsterica, who's a good friend of the show and I know he listens to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Stefan Linsner. Uh, who I also had the pleasure of meeting at I.O. this time. And uh, he also, in fact, the piece of code that I was talking about was written by him. So Jose was kind enough to point that out on Twitter. So a shout out to uh, Stefan as well. The other thing is uh, a listener, Tim Kist, sent sent this thing. Basically, Square has the equivalent of uh, parameterized, but without all the heavy boilerplate code and all the uh, clunky object array stuff and it's called Burst. Uh, uh, we'll add a link to the blog post where they introduce this and it's essentially the same parameterized technique but with nicer APIs uh, in typical Square fashion. So that is our Square library for the episode. I think um, at least like 50% of my import statements are like Square. Yeah. <laughs> That is probably true for most uh, projects these days. <laughs> like 10% Jake Wharton. <laughs> 10%. <laughs> yeah. What would we do without those good people? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, today we had, uh, we're going to talk about something a little bit different today. Uh, there's no guest on the show, but we have had some questions pop up around Git, 
branching methodologies, release strategies, you know, versioning. And folks have asked us this online in various different formats. And so we just kind of figured it would be a good time to chat about uh, what we felt and what we do uh, for our different projects. And so we're going to have some variations. Kaushik and I share a lot of the same principles. I deviate a little bit. And there are various reasons for that, which we'll get into in a second. I'll hop right in um, by saying that I kind of started learning Git probably back in 2008, I think was my earliest memory of touching it. Oh, that's pretty early. Yeah, it's coming from Subversion. I don't even remember. It was really zero dot something is what it was. <laughs> SVN. Anyway. Wow. Good days. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was it before that? Was it, uh, was it CVS? CVS? No. Was it CVS? CVS or VCS? VC- remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Version control system. That's oh no, that's like the generic term, though, right? Uh, yeah, but no, no. Oh no, source safe was before that. Source safe. Wow. Did you yeah. use source safe? I don't know if I use. I use something with the C. I remember that, and then we switched. CVS. CVS. Okay. <laughs> and then we. Like, I think of the to... drugstore though when I say that. <laughs> that source safe was like that original one from um, from Microsoft. Oh, that was, interesting. Like it would just like randomly corrupt, and you're like, "Oh, sorry, lost all of your repository. Bye." Oh man, yeah, that's it, those were the dark days. I remember when we moved to SVN, it was a big thing, and there was this mm-hmm. client called Tortoise S, like SVN. Yes, Tortoise SVN. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But then we were all saved, and Git came in. So definitely. So anyway, back in 2008, I started using Git. Back then, it was no real formalized anything and just understanding what Git was and <laughs> yeah. how to use it like was like this magical black wizardry. I was getting, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like understanding Git in itself was an effort. So <laughs> yeah, it was. And like when I finally understood it, it was like, I just felt like this, you know, the clouds opened up. But anyway, it wasn't until around 2000, like I think late 2009 and early 2010 is when I found Git Flow. And that was based upon a blog post by a gentleman by the name of Vincent Dreesen, I yeah. think is how you say it. So yeah, it looks like it was 2010, January of 2010 when I found it. And he goes into like a really in-depth example of like using master branch with a develop branch. You have feature branches, release branches, hot fixes, and then you have like, you know, the, the time axis and like kind of where all this merging and everything comes into place and versioning and everything. And so I kind of went down that road and then over the next few years kind of evolved and kind of kept a lot of those same principles, but didn't use any of the additional built-in uh, shell scripts uh, and so forth. Um, and now I'm kind of to the point where I loosely follow kind of a Git flow-like methodology. But my main purpose for that is I find that when I go to a lot of clients, they kind of follow that model already. And if they don't, I can then give them a basis of saying, here's what has worked before in the past for a bunch of other clients. I'll, we loosely follow this type of uh, pattern, which we can talk about a little bit more. And that kind of gives them a good uh, place to jump off from. And then at that point, they can kind of adjust it as as necessary. And I think it's kind of similar to what you have done. And you guys have kind of taken a little bit of an alternative approach to that. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much the same thing. And like you rightly pointed out, this is not like anything earth shattering or groundbreaking. This is like, you know, most big sort of systems. Uh, for example, my lead pointed uh, was telling me the other day, Postgres, which uh, releases Postgres, the database, mm-hmm. they follow the exact same versioning system. And so this is sort of like a proven solution. Uh, the Linux kernel was basically is basically developed in a very similar fashion. And I mean, Linux Rovals essentially 
came up with Git to enable this kind of a workflow. So going back to your point, it seems like the most optimum workflow. Now, obviously, there are like differences where you can tweak it, like you rightly said, here and there, but it boils down to a very similar sort of approach. Let's hop in to talk a little bit about how how you do it. And then I'm going to kind of jump in there in between and kind of say, hey, now, when you do it this way, I kind of maybe will diverge a little bit and then folks can kind of see uh, what the differences are. And then we can kind of at the end, we'll just say, hey, here's here's the similarities and here's kind of where we differ. So folks can see the two different models. They're very similar with just a small little, um, you know, little difference. That sounds like a plan. Let's do it. All right. We'll start off with like certain tenets, right? Like like certain things are supposed to be true in this workflow. And like we'll start from there. And then as we talk about those points, the whole workflow will start to make sense. And then I, I think the advantage with that approach is also that people would then be able to figure out what needs to be done versus us specifying precise commands, right? Because that I don't think that would be an approach that works uh, mm-hmm. out here. So the first thing is, the way at least we, uh, like when I say we, I mean, uh, this is a specific team at Instacart. So we have only a single sort of trunk, uh, which is master, right? And I think here here is basically a big difference between what many other people follow. They mm-hmm. have like a develop branch, they have like a dev branch or something along those lines. Uh, we just have the master branch and that's the equivalent of our sort of canary or bleeding edge or nightly build. All our changes, our latest changes, everything goes into the master branch. Okay. I'll, I'll talk about some of the other kinds of branches and then like we'll try to again touch base and see how like uh, what your thoughts on and how like we sort of handle these things. Yeah, the, the my main difference, I mean, right off the bat here is that you have your master branches that kind of the main canary bleeding edge. Now, does that mean that all of the most recent changes are there? Yep. So if you want to pull the latest changes that every single developer has deemed relatively stable and wants to uh, sort of like others to sort of pull down, that's in the master branch. Okay, that's going to be probably the main difference almost of this entire conversation is that my master branch is rarely ever touched. It's only touched when I'm ready to release something. And that's either going to be something that's pushed to, like say, Google Play Mm -hmm. as a regular, you know, feature release or maybe a hot fix. Uh, but it's only stuff that's going to be released, and that's the only time I'll push to master. So your master branch is the is bleeding edge. That's where my develop branch is. My develop gotcha. branch is lead, is the bleeding edge, and then uh, everything kind of branches off of there. So that's our main difference, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I already have an idea of like the approach that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we talk about release branches and how like I handle that, uh, we can have an interesting conversation there because I think that's where like. It all sort of like uh, blends in. Totally. So apart from a primary master branch, there are feature branches. Now, feature branches are, are essentially what individual like developers work on. So if I have like a feature, then whenever I begin anything, I start with a new branch saying feature one. And a typical sort of discipline that we have found that works is we prefix each branch with our first names. Now, usually in, at Instacart, I'm, they refer to me as KG because that's <laughs> just simpler, like considering my full name. So all of my branches have the prefix KG and uh, a forward slash. It would be KG forward slash feature underscore one, KG forward slash feature underscore underscore two. Those are essentially feature branches where if I'm building on some feature, all of those things go in there. Now, a couple of things with this feature branch it's very, very important that you keep rebasing off master on this. So if I have this feature that I'm working on for maybe like a couple of days, three or four days, it's important that at every juncture that is possible, I keep rebasing 
off of my master. I'm just gonna be devil's advocate here. Why why shouldn't I as a developer just like wait till I'm done and then rebase? What's the problem with that? That's a great question. And that's actually a very, very bad practice. And the reason you don't want to keep very long lived uh, feature branches, or at least you want to make sure that you're rebasing fast enough is because when you're working in a team and you have other people making changes, the longer you have your feature branch running, mm-hmm. the possibilities that you would run into merge conflicts, which is basically one of the scariest things with Git, is way higher. So if you have a feature branch that you've been working on an old version of master for about four or five days, and then one find, like, and you have like three or four developers like merging left and right, especially if you have people who refactor stuff, like that's going to like cause a lot of problems five days later where you try to merge your feature back onto a master because essentially the code would have drifted and you'd spend like hours just like trying to resolve that merge conflict. So it goes back to the same thing. Like when you have smaller patch sets, when you have smaller changes, it's just easier to deal with that merge conflict, right? So that's essentially why you want to keep rebasing off master as fast as possible. I imagine you pretty much do the same thing, right? Totally do the same thing. It's uh, I am habitual about you know rebasing on top of you know develop for me because of that exact issue. Like I don't mind merge conflicts; I've gotten used to them and resolving them. But what I don't like is getting into that monstrous merge <laughs> that takes you six hours to go through because there's this you know conflict after conflict. It's nice when I kind of merge it down. It's like, oh, you have three merge conflicts. And you're like, okay, I can fix these real fast because I'm familiar with the code. I remember I just changed this, you know, a couple of hours ago. Okay, that needs to move here. This needs to move over there. Cool. I'm done. Keep moving on. But when you have that huge monster merge conflict or, or, you know, feels like hundreds of them, but it's probably not. But when it feels like that, it's just, it can kill your productivity. It can kill your enjoyable process of just working uh, in whatever you're working in. So definitely, if you can do it more often, I would highly recommend it. A quick tangent, what do you use for handling your merge conflicts? Because I know uh, even over time, I've become like comfortable. Like I'm not as scared of merge conflicts as it used to happen before. But I'm curious, like what is your tooling process with it? That's a good question. Uh, so let's, I think it's hop back to the command line is is my home for Git. <laughs> I, I am not a, uh, um, I'm not a GUI Git person. Only <laughs> time I use a GUI tool uh is anytime. Well, if I'm in Android Studio and I want to take a look at a diff or anything like that, or I'm just committing some <laughs> changes, I'll maybe use that. But it's probably only 20% of the time that I'm maybe less than that 10%. So the rest of the time is inside of the command line. And so that means if I am rebasing and I get a, you know, that nice little message saying, hey, there is a merge conflict or whatever the exact term is inside of the command line, what I do is I have a diff tool already set up and there's a ton of them out there that you can use and I think there's ones that have two-way merge and three-way merge and it's really I think it's up to the developer to what they prefer I have found over the years what works best for me uh, is kind of like the two-way merge what's on the left and what's on the right and then you can kind of like mix and match from there and so what I end up using is diff merge and that's from source gear actually you can download it and use it for free and try it out. Uh, and they'll keep bugging you to try to buy a license to please support it. Uh, I bought a license just because it's just one of those tools. It's like $19, I think is what it was that like, okay, super easy. All I have to do is I get a merge conflict, get merge tool. Boom, it pops up my merge uh, conflict in a window. I can resolve it in a GUI tool, close it out, and I'm back in the command line. Do you use anything? Like you, I used to be a big command line user just because I I have been using Git for some time. And so I, I was very comfortable with the command line. And so I always mm-hmm. stuck to it. And I wasn't really uh, too comfortable with most of the fancy GUI tools that came out. 
But I did change that recently when, uh, of course, when we switched to IntelliJ and I started using Android Studio. Mm-hmm. Android Studio, like IntelliJ has an amazing diff tool. Like their diff tool kills. And there's also like this option. And I think in a previous ep- episode we mentioned where you can use like a command line launcher. Mm-hmm. You can set it up. Uh, so what you can do is you can configure Git to sort of use the same tool from IntelliJ for your diffing. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what I use now because I, I, I feel very comfortable with that tool now. And it's as you rightly said, there's like a two-way merge. You can say, hey, you know what? Just show me the changes from the local and uh, what the current file is. And then just show me the changes with the current file and what we see from the server. And so usually I do that when there's like a bigger merge conflict, I adopt that approach and it immediately tells me like, oh, those are the set of changes that are coming in. So mm-hmm. when I bring all those changes into the file, I know like where to pull and where to ignore stuff. So uh, I found that to, the more and more I've used that tool now, now that's become my default. So by default, when I diff or like I have a merge conflict that needs resolution, I just resort to that tool. That's worked out really well for me. That's, uh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to give the the merge tool inside of IntelliJ and Android Studio shot. I've just been using diff merge. I can't even tell you how long it's been. It might have been <laughs> since 2010, uh, very early on. So it's uh, I think it's it's useful. But having it built into the IDE is so much easier at the same time because then you don't have to, to switch tools. Right, right, right. So you prefix your features with your initials. So KG hyphen whatever your feature name is. That's correct, right? Mm-hmm. So I have done this as well. This is something that I, as soon as I branch into two or more developers on a team, I prefer this approach of my name hyphen or my initials hyphen feature. And actually Realm does this too. So if you actually go to github.com slash Realm slash Realm Java, whatever that is, mm-hmm. you can just look at their branches right there. You'll actually see the developers' names on the Realm team, uh, oh. like CM, which Christian was on on the show here. Uh, CM is, is his branches. You can see uh, Emmanuel's branches. EZ is his initials there. And so you'll see all these Ooh. different branches on, on there. So it's actually really cool. There's tons of them in there. A lot of other folks follow the same process. My only deviation from this is, is when I'm working on a project by myself, I still follow these same principles, except I don't prefix it with my initials because I'm the only person. And and at that point, I'll just call it like feature hyphen, you know, add button to menu or whatever. And this makes uh, a lot of sense. Again, a lot of the things we say, people might feel, oh, you know what? I'm a single developer. I don't necessarily have to use this. But the minute you join a team of two, like you'll start to see these benefits. And this is like a proven system, right? Like people oh, yeah. released versioned software using this system. So it's just in your benefit to learn this system. Once you're comfortable with Git, it isn't too difficult to follow this process because it's very methodical. We did the same branching model at MyFitnessPal the entire time I was there. Uh, when I was at Point, we did the same thing. Uh, and now with various clients that I'm working with now, there's also very similar to approach to this. So it is definitely a proven model. And to further your point of, even if you're doing this by yourself, you may feel like it's quite heavyweight. Like, well, I don't need to do that. I can just run everything right off develop. I understand that totally. But just getting yourself into that mental mindset of like, all right, I'm this is the way that I always do it. It just becomes something like muscle memory to you. Like when you create a oh, new yeah. feature branch, it just goes here. And what you'll notice eventually is you'll be working on that feature branch, making commits to it. And all of a sudden something comes up. You'll get a bug report or a crash from Crashalytics oh, yeah. you realize is affecting every user. And you're just like, oh, poop. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And like... And at that point in time, if you're running everything off of like your bleeding edge environment and you have all these changes, like 
you're kind of in a weird situation if you haven't created release branches, which we'll talk about in a second, and you're just running off that environment. If you have these feature branches or whatever, you can kind of say, hey, I'm going to stash these changes or commit it as a work in progress and then hop back over to my master or my release branches and then fix those things and move on. It just gets you in a good mindset. It's just a really good habit to build right out of the gate. And when you do join that team, it just makes it even easier because it's a seamless uh, transition for you. That makes perfect sense. Let's talk about release branches. So how do you go about doing your releases with this type of Git environment that we're talking about today? Yeah, so uh, release branches a, are very different from feature branches. Uh, mm-hmm. Release branches, the way at least we approach it is anytime you have a set of changes that are ready to be released to a user, even if it's like a beta version, anytime it's going to hit someone who's not a developer, mm-hmm. what we do is we create a, a release branch, right? And again, the nomenclature that we follow here is we have the prefix release. Uh, so for feature branches, we have our initials, uh, with release branches, we just have like release, release forward slash. Yep. And then we have the major dot minor version. Now, I think we should take a quick aside and talk about semantic versioning here, mm-hmm. uh, which I think there's like benefits. So semantic versioning is a very cool sounding name to something that's very basic that probably everyone uses, right? So when you version your application, you have a major dot minor dot patch. Do you follow something similar like this for your versioning as well? I do. I actually, I do follow the major dot minor dot patch. And sometimes there's a, there's a variation on this and that the patch is sometimes just used as the build number. So it depends on the company that I'm working with. They may replace patch with just build number. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we'll, talk, we'll get into what those are right now. Right. So, I mean, essentially the major version is like when you have breaking API changes, right? And most mm-hmm. libraries that you notice, for example, retrofit, one retrofit two RxJava one RxJava two. The minute you have a major version bump, that basically means your API has broken, which means the developer has to go back and change code in order to sort of like support this new version. Uh, so that's basically any breaking API changes go uh, require a major version bump. Minor versions are when you have features basically, right? So if you yep. have like a smallish feature, like a new feature that you want to say, hey, uh, user, this is a new feature that we added. So it isn't necessarily any API breaking change, but it's just like a new feature that you add. Uh, you bump the minor version up. So typically when you have new features, you'll start to, like users would start to see these bump up. We have major, right? And that's for, ma- you know, incompatible API changes. But let's say we're talking about like consumer app, like Instacart or another one like MyFitnessPal. Uh the only person who really develops on these platforms is you and I, the developers on those teams. At what point do we determine a major? In my experience, it's kind of been like, all right, well, we're maybe doing a, you know, a big redesign and there's a tremendous amount of you know change in the application. Uh, and visually, it may even look completely different. At that point, I would have we would usually bump a major version. What do you guys do in that situation? We've talked about this before, right? Because in the context of like mobile applications, like what does yep. breaking API mean? Because everything is just like binary in the end, right? Yeah. The way we have sort of settled with this is whenever you have, for example, and this is like even common with iOS, right? Or even like Android, when you have a min SDK change, like for example, you're saying, hey, from now on, we're only going to support min SDK 17 or min SDK 19, where something fundamentally changes with the application. For example, even if we say, hey, from now on, we're only going to support Google Play services and not like anything else or like vice versa, those in the context of an application causes a major version bump. So like in iOS, I remember recently we had a version bump because 
uh, our folks there like they're they get to be more aggressive about their main version and i think ios 7 was what they uh was canceled support for so they bumped to ios 8 and that allowed them to basically start using swift in their code right so that made a major version bump because we're basically fundamentally changing something uh where it's sort of breaking like it's not necessarily breaking at least with min sdk it just means that you won't get updated versions of the application uh, but it still is something that causes like it's a very fundamental architecture change that where the customer has some sort of like an effect. So that's how we have settled for it. What if you guys do have that situation where you're on version 2.1, you know, major dot minor, mm-hmm. and your designers come in with a brand new spanking design? They don't ever do that, right? Um, <laughs> no, never. <laughs> <laughs> no, all the designers out there, we love you. We're just giving yeah. you a hard time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if they do come up with that brand new design and it is cool and if you're moving over everything to material, uh, do you guys just go, all right, well, this is cool. We like it. We're going to implement it. Now that's version 2.2. That's where we've been a little wishy-washy. Like we have done that once, but like, you know, <laughs> when we bumped everything to like the material design change that came in, uh, I don't remember. I think it was with App Compact, right? We did bump the mm-hmm. major version up there. Okay. So we haven't settled on necessarily a formula, but you're pretty much uh, like, I think you sort of like understand where I'm coming from. Like whenever you have like a drastic change and we just have a major version bump. Have you followed a similar thing? Like if you have like a huge UI rewrite, do you just like bump the major version up? Again, I'm coming from a consulting uh, side of the fence. And usually a lot of the times, and, and I don't know if you've experienced this before, but a lot of the times version numbers will almost come from a top down perspective from product product uh-huh. might say mm-hmm. hey this is you know where this is a 3.0 version of the app and you're like well we're still supporting api 16 like what are you talking about uh and they're like no it's, this is 3.0 this is a marketing push um yeah so i've seen it in that regard but then i've also seen it where you know you're going to change some you know uh, a major piece of the application like maybe you're removing your content provider that you were sharing with the rest of the world and that's you know that's a good reason to bump your major um because it is breaking an API at that point, or if you are changing a, you know, a min SDK level. So um, what I've noticed every time there's a major bump though, it's not just one small thing like, hey, we're not going to support API levels, you know, 16 anymore. We're going to go to min SDK 19. Usually it's that and a whole bunch of other, you know, major things that are getting rolled into that as well. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense. I guess we are pretty much on the same page. And if listeners are interested, there's actually this page called semwer.com. We'll add a link to that in the show notes where they actually talk about semantic versioning. This is something that a group of software engineers have actually thought about and come up with a reasonable sort of standard to approach this thing. So that was major and minor. Uh, Let's talk about patch quickly. So patch, uh, I mean, any fixes that like bug fixes or like if you want to add like an incremental thing, that's essentially how... uh, we just keep increasing patches for that, right? So that's mm-hmm. so if we have like a beta version out and then like uh, users come back and report like maybe there's like some uh, small issue, then we keep bumping up the patch number. And I mean, that's how we go about that specific use case. Is that also how you use the patch number? I use the patch number actually. Well, yes, I do because every single change is, is, is something that's getting patched, added or whatever. If it's a major feature, of course, then I'll, you know, I'll bump the minor on that. But that's a manual process. Uh, I usually like to leave the last number and this is kind of where I kind of depends on the situation will change. Sometimes I'll have that patch in there because a company wants to stick to strict semver type of, you know, standards. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, what I'll actually do is actually attach another value on the end of that. So it'd be major, minor, patch, and then dot build. 
And then that build ah, will actually be the build number from, you know, continuous integration server like Circle or, or a Jenkins or anything like that. Now, on the flip side of that, there may be companies that are like, we really don't care about patch that much, but we do want this to increment with each of our builds mm-hmm. and we will replace, it'll be major.minor.build number, which was kind of where they're just saying, hey, that's in place of the patch right, right. and it just increments each time. The nice thing about that is, is you can calculate that inside of your build.gradle file, uh, which I do, and then I will just build that whole version uh, name uh, inside of the Gradle file, and it'll pull the system environment variables from the build server, so it actually increments each time yep. I perform a build. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. What do you guys, do you guys do anything for the build number at all? Yeah, we just keep uh, bumping it up. It's, so it just runs from one to, like, whatever that build is so like 9900 it just is monotonically increasing gotcha okay uh one interesting thing there uh again a side point i think that we should mention is as much as you can all of this should be automated right and i think we talked about this before what we do here is like i actually wrote a ruby script that uh Mm -hmm. sort of just bumps this version so all i do is on command line i say hey release major release uh space minor release space patch and it automatically figures out what this build number should be. So I don't have to manually go and change it in any place. I know this. it's pretty common at this point to also do it with Groovy right in Gradle. That's what you use, right? I know you love that language. <laughs> uh, I Yeah, I definitely do not <laughs> like Groovy. And I have been shamed once or twice. Uh, they're like, hey, isn't the whole point with Gradle that it uses a programming language? It uses Groovy? I'm like, yeah, it is, but I like, Ruby better, so I'm just going to keep my script in Ruby. Now, with the announcement of Kotlin being used uh, in Gradle, I might change that. Like Now, that is something that I might be interested in, but yeah. if you're asking me to move something that's written in Ruby to Groovy... I don't know about that. that. Like, you know, I I think developer sanity is a real thing. So (laughs) there are folks out there that listen to the show that love groovy. And if that, and if you're one of them, then cool. Keep on keeping on. I'm, I'm with you there. Personally, I uh, um, have to stick with Kaushik here. I'm more of a fan of Ruby myself. And if I can't have Ruby, then maybe some Python or something. Yeah. Having it automated might not seem like a big thing, but it is an absolute essential productivity boost. Like almost every team that I've worked on in every company, like I just, because I know how this has worked in the past, I just quickly write that script. And week two, everyone is like thanking me, saying, hey, this is like the best thing ever. Because the other advantage is if, again, like at Instacart, we sort of encourage other developers and other teams who work like who work on different platforms to also start to get into mobile development. And just having this one-line thing makes it simple. We don't have to explain to them how Gradle works, how our versioning system works. It's all just a single command line, right? So I think there's a huge benefit uh, there. So you're going to run the script and it's going to release your major, your minor to get patch. What about these these release branches? How are, how are you creating these? Anytime I have something that's releasable to the user, I create a release branch, right? Okay. Now the release branch is sort of sacred. And this is where I think our difference lies in like the, the workflow. You You mentioned that in master, you basically have your stable sort of like points, right? So it's like a bolt there where you don't... Uh, where you have like a stable sort of notion. So at any point mm-hmm. of time, if you want to, if someone says, hey, I need version 4.27 of the app, you would typically go to your master branch and then look for that release, right? Yes and no, yes. But we'll, we'll, we'll get in deeper in a minute. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically what we do is we have a release slash 4.27. Importantly, we don't have the build number there, right? So it's just the major and the minor. And what we do is, 
those branches basically live on. So these are very different from feature branches. You do not rebase on master with this. Don't rebase on master with this because then it might rewrite history and you'll get into like a whole bunch of other problems which we won't necessarily go into detail. This is basically sacred, right? So this is like a point in time. And what we do here is, and this is where like the discipline varies across like different teams. We have release 427. The minute we know that a new feature is going to be developed and like we're beta testing it, we'll immediately add another release branch called release slash 4.28. So both okay. of these releases might be running in parallel, right? And at any point of time, at least in our experience, the way it's worked is we have three live release branches. So we have the earliest version. So like maybe let's put some examples in here so it's a little easy to visualize. So say release 4.27 is our stable version, right? And uh, so we have 4.27. We would also have a 4.28 and a 4.29, right? 4.28 and 4.29 are probably not released to everyone because we do staged rollouts. So that's probably released to maybe like 5% of our users or 10% of our users. But what exact, just for folks that aren't unaware of this, but do we, I think we should explain what staged releases are for folks that aren't really up to par with that or maybe aren't the ones actually pressing the buttons on Google Play. Oh yeah, for sure. So staged releases is like this godsend thing that you have, especially if you're a company that releases pretty fast and yep. uh, you don't necessarily have like a whole QA team sitting here waiting for you to give them a build and sort of like testing. So staged rollouts essentially allows you to say, hey, take my application, but don't release it to everyone. Because if there's like a bug that's like obvious enough in some flow that I haven't necessarily tested myself, I don't want everyone to start crashing on it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is I'm sort of minimizing the risk by saying, just release it to like maybe uh, 5% of my users. Let 5% of my users use this. And if you're using Crashlytics or Rollbar or any of uh, the other tools that we've mentioned in the past, like the person who releases that specific number keeps a keen look on one of these tools. Or if you have it automated, uh, those notifications come to you. And you start to see, hey, in this version, like I've noticed that there's like a bump of this specific crash. The advantage with that is then you can go back and say, oh, I made a mistake with that thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly patch that and then release it back to those 5% or 10% and then collect data again. And you can slowly start loosening that bolt and say, okay, increase it to 20%, increase it to 50%, increase it to 80%. And eventually you'll get to 100%, right? Uh, if you don't have like extensive testing, uh, this is again like another strategy, though you should have extensive testing. That's like automated testing. You should always like shoot for that. That's the safest thing. But if you wanted to maybe test real world cases, that's another example, right? You have like this crazy device that's being used with some other weird sort of uh, setting. Staged rollouts really help with those kind of settings. Now, when you go, so let's say you, let's say you're working on that 4.29 release, right? You run your script and you publish that out and you decide to release it to 5% of your current user base. You have a million users, so whatever that calculation is. And those 5% get it, right? You realize you all of a sudden get a bunch of crashes and you say, oh no, we got to fix this line of code right here. You fix that at that point. So if you have a release high release slash 4.29, do you create another branch off of that one called release 4.30 and then add the fix to that? If it's a patch fix, we don't, right? So that's why it's important that if it's release uh, 4.29 and you're adding a patch, right? So that patch basically lives on in that branch. So it would be 4.27.2 or .4 or .11 okay. or .12. So we okay. don't create a new branch 
a, a new release branch, especially if a feature hasn't changed, right? If it's all just patch fixes, like you notice a crash, immediately you drop into that branch and then you just patch that and you keep it living within the same release uh, within the same release branch. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know some people uh, also create a new release branch and then like drop the old release branch, but I know many people do the same thing. Basically, it sticks to semantic versioning. You're using the patch as you know the release. This is the 4.29 release, and oops, we made a mistake. We need to patch it, and that's kind of what the patch part of semantic versioning is there for, so you can fix it. Now, you did say something about having three different versions out there, though. So how does that work? Yeah, this is where it gets really tricky and super interesting, right? So you said, what if you had 4.29? So yep. I patch 4.29, all is good in the world because that's the latest release. Mm-hmm. Now, what if I noticed in 4.27, which is typically supposed to be my stable version, right? I notice, hey, there's actually this bug fix that uh, doesn't hit too many users, but it's something that we've noticed and we know how to fix. We got to mm-hmm. fix this. So you would fix it at 4.27, right? So I would add a patch. Assuming our stable version is 4.27.10, right? Mm-hmm. I'm adding a patch, and so then it goes to 4.27.11. This is fine, but I can't just like merge this onto master because I already have certain parallel branches, right? I have 4.28 and 4.29 going out to 5 or 10% of my users. Like, what do they do? Like, they, they don't get the fix. It doesn't work like that, right? So the key element here is if you create a patch on a previous version, so it's 4.27, you have to first merge onto the next immediate version. So from if I add the fix to 4.27, I have to merge that fix onto 4.28. Then I have to go to that 4.28 branch and then merge that fix onto 4.29. Then I have to go onto the 4.29 branch and merge that fix back onto master because or develop in your case, right? So because master yep. or develop is typically the latest version. So that's like 4.29. 50 or 4.999 right because that's uh, you can think of that as being like the like at any point of time that is always the latest version so you eventually have to merge that back into master which is why any and it's important to maintain this flow because that is how you ensure that master always has like the fixes that you add into any release branch uh, does that make sense do you follow a similar sort of thing yeah, and this is normally, I think it's normally called like patching up is kind of a common term. Right, Would you right. agree? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the question I, I have for you is how do you go about doing this? Let's, like, I know how I do it. And, and if I'm on 4.27, I have to patch that. I commit that, you know, let's just use one commit as a as an easy example here. If I have to commit that, and usually it's one commit because I don't want a bunch of commits on there because then for whatever reason, I'm going to have to bump it again. Um, and it's easier to keep track of. So, let me roll back here. Let's say it takes me four commits to actually fix this issue. I'll actually take those four commits and I'll squash them into one commit on 4.27. I'll yep. say, all right, mm-hmm. here is, this fixes the problem. We are now at 4.27.2 or whatever that is. And now I need to bring that up to 4.28. What I would normally do is go, you know, check out 4.28 and then I will cherry pick it over. How do you normally go about doing that? Now, again, I think both would work, but I I literally merge 27 okay. back onto 28. Because the commits are already there, so I guess, you know. Yeah, because 27, like, if you're doing this correct, essentially all the commits that were on 27, and this is where, like, the semantic versioning, there's, like, this concept of, like, each version being monotonically increasing. Yep. So 4.29 should always, always have all the changes that 4.28 has and all the changes that 4.27 has, right? And that's why, like, you know, the the version number increase makes sure that, like, you always have 
uh, all the features and all the fixes from a previous version. Yeah, so you could totally merge that and you could you do the same exact thing, yeah. Right. So I, I think like the difference is if you cherry pick it, possibly your history is a little cleaner. I am not entirely sure of that. I, I, I don't recall. But with merge, what happens is it'll show that the branch has been merged. So it shows a more truer representation of the history. But cherry picking, I think, makes it look uh, nicer. But either approach would definitely work if you're doing things correctly, right? Yeah, and it does does matter if you are if you have merge uh, merge commits in there. If right, you right. don't have mm-hmm. merge commits, and if you're just trying to keep that clean tree structure, right. uh, so it depends on your team of how you're doing. I've been on teams where uh, no merge commits were allowed, and you had to rebase everything. So we basically had just a straight line right, right, of, right. of yes. commits, mm-hmm. um, which was nice, but uh, it did require a little bit more uh, process. But as long as uh, you're getting everything patched up according, I think you're gonna be good. That's very true. And like we used to do that before, but then we realized the thing is, while that does allow a very clean Git history, we often noticed more often than not, we don't go back to the Git history until there was a problem, right? So it seemed yep. like a lot of overhead for something that we weren't frequenting. And at that point, anyway, if you're going to go back to the Git history to see or trace something, then you, I mean, you probably have to be like conversant enough where those don't necessarily matter as much, right? So that's why we shifted. But again, like it makes total sense to adopt either approach depending on what your team feels works for them. Exactly. And the reason why the, one of my clients did that was because we kept running into, we had developers all around the world uh, in different teams that mm-hmm. were committing to the same code base. And we kept running into weird issues where we a bug was introduced and we couldn't figure out where it was introduced. So we'd have to continually do a get ah, bisect gotcha, and get gotcha. bisect would kind of uh, right, right, right. be a little troublesome on the merge conflicts. And so I'm on the merge commits themselves. And so after going to just like the straight history, it made it easier. Uh, since then, I think that client has gone back to merge commits because they have you know adjusted their team accordingly. But that's the main reason why we did it at the time. Uh, I want to ask you a quick question. Do you possibly automate that like do you have like a mechanism just like automating the patching up process or do you basically just like do it manually uh i'm more of a manual person usually it's not okay. that far back usually oh, me too. Right? i don't run i don't run three versions usually i may run two and again this for folks that are listening some of you have apps out there and and you're just trying to get to your first 50 or 100 users so some of these things may not even apply to you and if it's uh, these are some of the techniques that Kaushik and I have used at, at companies who have millions of users and millions of, of folks who download our app. So 5%, you know, that's a ton of people, um, you know, 50,000 50, people <laughs> that, that automatically get an update. Uh, you'll see issues real fast. Now, if you have 100 users and five people have the app, they may not use it for a day or two. So it may not make sense to to use the, the rollouts, but it's something great to learn uh, and to know about as well. It is nice to get in that focus. Once once it becomes second nature to you, it's actually, it's pretty liberating, right? Like in terms of like the process. It totally is. And especially when you start, and this is my experience since I'm remote, when you're on the same page as everyone else on your team, and if you have a kind of a remote culture, it's so much easier to understand how everything works inside of Git because you can just go in there and understand where everything's at. Is it a feature? Is it a release or, or so forth? Anything of that nature. Yeah, you don't have to ping them at 2 a.m. their time on Slack and then say, hey, I'm getting a merge conflict or like, I don't understand why you have this version here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They won't appreciate that. (laughs) So do you have any scripts that you automatically use to to patch up? I used to previously try to automate this, but then I realized the problem uh, and the reason I asked this question was because I noticed sometimes I haven't found an efficient way to automate merge conflicts. Like that always requires 
us to oh, sort yeah. of like dive in. And so at that point, it was like, if you have a merge conflict, then the whole automation is like thrown out of the like sort of uh, equation, right? And then it actually becomes more difficult then because I have to trace how far ahead like you've gone through with the automated process. So with these patching up process, I've just found it easier to do it manually. The automation process hasn't worked for me in my experience at least. So the release is automated, but the process of like merging up and making sure you're applying the right change, we don't automate that. Do you follow something very similar, I imagine, too, right? Like, I'm curious to know at what point do you add like a release sort of bolt in your master? Because my master is your developer. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And there, again, coming from the consulting background, it changes with each client. But for the most part, if we have, let's take a release, uh, for example, I do the same thing. We'll, I'll branch off of, say, let's go from develop for whatever. We have develop. Uh, and then that's where we decide, hey, at this current point in time, we're ready to go ahead and release to, um, let's say, um, what's going to be release 2.0 or whatever. And then I'm going to branch off of develop. And then I'm going to create a release branch called 2.0. And that was branched off of develop. And then we may be in there for up to a week or so saying, hey, these are only these quick fixes that maybe the product team or QA is saying, hey, you need to add these these things or fix these few bugs we found. What this does is it allows the rest of the team that's not doing those release-oriented fixes to continue on down the develop path, you know, making commits back to that, that branch. Then at that point in time, when we finally get the sign off from, you know, the product team or whoever, they say, hey, it looks like this is good. This is golden. Let's go ahead and ship this. I will then go ahead and merge that down, that, that release branch, release 2.0 down into master. And I'll tag it as, you know, 2.0. And then, so this leaves master with very few, like, you know, you see the tags, if you were to list the tags, you could see it from there. Uh, so very few tags. This does follow very close to the Git flow style. The only thing that's different with the Git flow style of methodology is I don't use a lot of the same commands that they use, like no fast forward or anything of that nature. I kind of stick to a lot of the, the plain stuff. But this has worked for me. And one of the main reasons that I use it is because it's a common ground that I can use when I go into a new client who doesn't have any process in place and they're looking to me saying, hey, we're kind of a mess right now. How do we kind of get this process under control? I can come in and say, here's what we're going to do. I can actually show them some documentation that's already been built by somebody else, other people have used and say, look, you'll start here and then we can kind of evolve. And if we want to remove the develop and kind of go to your method, we can do that. That's totally an option. But here's where we're, here is, you know, ground level where we're going to start. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So that is like a whole boatload of information. And uh, it's nice to see that like a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, we seem to be following the same thing too. So yeah, it's, yeah that's it's pretty good. And I imagine many other folks are also using the same uh, approach. If you have used a different approach or you're interested in mentioning certain other things, like shoot us a message and let us know. Uh, many listeners have asked like if we could talk about this process. So it's not necessarily just Android development related, but it's also something that is critical to like your development process. I totally agree. And if um, if anybody completely disagrees with us, Kaushik, how do they get a hold of you? <laughs> you can uh, vent all your grievances at Kaushik Gopal uh, at Twitter. That's <laughs> that's uh, I'm usually quick with those responses. And if uh, folks want to get a hold of me, you can also complain to me. I'll be a good sounding board. It's <laughs> uh, at, at Don Felker on uh, on Twitter, or you can go to my website donfelker.com. Perfect. And if you have any joint feedback that you want to send us, uh, send us directly, then Fragmented Cast is our Twitter handle. 
and like we'll try to add helpful links to all the stuff that we've talked about today in our show notes and that will be at fragmentedpodcast.com slash episodes slash our episode number definitely all right thank you folks for listening and we will catch you in the next episode and before we sign off uh, once again we want to thank hire for sponsoring this episode of fragmented if you land up getting a job through hire they'll give you a thousand dollar bonus but if you use our special link hire.com slash fragmented you double it up and you get two thousand dollars thank you so much for sponsoring this show hire